Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mind Matters. If you tuned in to our show last week, um, one of the books we mentioned that we've been reading this year is The Origin of the World's Mythologies by E.J. Michael Witzel. So we're going to be talking about this today because we've all been checking it out recently. And like I said in the show last week, it is quite the revolutionary book. Like if you're into mythology at all, comparative mythology, like if you've read anything by like Mirce Eliade or Joseph Campbell, or even if you're just into myths, even in fiction, like, um, you know, if you're a Neil Gaiman fan, Gaiman's really into mythology. One of his recent books is actually his own retelling of the Norse mythology. I mean, if you like superhero movies, if you like Marvel, if you like Thor and that kind of stuff, like this is where all that stuff comes from. So this book has the ambitious goal of tracing the world's mythologies back through time. So again, like I mentioned last week, his methodology is basically to, and his argument is to say that it is possible, and uh, he'd argue that he has done this, um, possible to trace back mythologies in the same way that we can trace back languages, um, as well as even genetics. And um, like using those sciences and um, archaeology, paleoanthropology, all these things, we can trace back human movements, for instance, and the, the spreading of languages and the, and the, the kind of morphing and, and growth of languages. So we can look at, the, for instance, the Indo-European languages, trace back the similarities, like, uh, and using these um, analytic techniques, look at like, the branching points and saying, like, okay, well, these three languages are connected in these ways, and these three are connected in these ways, and then before that, they were the same, and then that family, that language family is connected to this language family, and they all trace back to like, a proto-Indo-European, for instance. Well, he's arguing that the same thing can be done with mythologies. You look at one mythology, and you look at its overall narrative, its overall storyline, you compare, um, so you've got the overall storyline, and then you've got the, like the individual, what he calls, mythemes. So these little mythic units. It might just be like um, you know, the first human being born from a tree or being made out of clay, or um, you know, some bird doing some crazy thing. W whatever it is, there's an identifiable unit in that myth. You can look at uh, groups of these in one like, uh, modern location, and then compare that to uh, related groups and related mythologies, look at the similarities, and then do exactly the same thing with languages, trace it back to a kind of a common ancestor. Again, that's where the, the comparison with genetics comes in. He's basically tracing back and looking for the, the, the shared, you know, the common ancestors for these different mythologies. And he comes to some interesting conclusions. Now, one of the, one of the things that I don't, uh, well, that he doesn't, uh, like he doesn't belabor the point, but one of the things that I found about this um, was the, it says something about like the nature of human creativity. Now we'll get into some of the details in the book, but I just want to make this point. Something about the nature of, uh, of creativity and the way that humans kind of make, um, well, tell stories and make art too. He makes reference to uh, music too. Like you can theoretically do the same thing with musical styles. And because uh, if you compare different world world musics, you'll find that, you know, some cultures will use primarily like a pentatonic scale, like in East Asia. And then you have like the, the, our Western, um, 12 note, um, 12 note scale. And then, but if you go to like places like in India, you'll get like a, a 24 note scale. They have like microtones. And so 
theoretically, you could trace those back and kind of come up with this proto, like proto world music that might uh, have shared characteristics. Of course, that's going to be way di way more difficult than it is um, to do with mythology. So it might not even be possible, but it's at least theoretically possible. And um, like being a musician myself, I think of um, one of the things that always has like just um, made me shake my head is all these copyright lawsuits. And of course, like on YouTube, it's YouTube is is the worst for copyright claims because you know, like a a creator will um, make a video. Let's say it's like a twenty minute video. It might even be like a musical analysis video where they're looking at a piece of music and then taking it apart, for, like for educational purposes. This is the kind of stuff that uh, you know my professors would do in college when I was taking courses about music theory. Take a, a piece of music and kind of like analyze it, and this video will then get claimed by the copyright owner for that, like, it might have, it might be five, ten seconds of this song. And then all the ad revenue from that video will then go to this copyright claimant. Even though their, their copyrighted material is being used for like five to ten seconds out of this 20 minute video that has been, that has all kinds of other content, and, I mean, it should be fair use. That's one kind of, kind of this copyright claim hysteria. The other is actual mar artists suing other artists for like stealing their songs. Of course, there are some famous examples like, uh, was it MC Hammer uh, ripping off Queen? Um, dun, dun, dun. I, I can't even hum it. <laughs> but, yeah, oh, it's Vanilla Ice, right? Yeah, Vanilla Ice and uh, Queen. Um, yeah, he totally ripped off that bass line and was like, oh, well, it's different because I just added that one note. Um, sure, he ripped it off, but should, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I think Copyright claims like that are just totally bogus. I think people should be totally free to rip each other off um, however much they want because arguably that has been the the history of like art and of of um, well all kinds of artistic creations even if so even from painting you know looking at a theme looking at a um, a particular style or subject and then doing it in a new style, obviously influenced by someone else, someone that they've been studying. Music, I mean, <coughs> most, uh, most well, I'd, I'd argue that the vast majority of music is ripped off in some way. First of all, the, the vast majority of like number one hits use the same chord progression, just because the studio executives have you know, realized that, uh, that the, that chord progression pro uh, makes hits, even though historically uh, those, those hits with that chord progression have been like in the minority of songs, all, like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were all kinds of different chord progressions that made hits. Top nut, like number one. Like the, like the Beatles, only one of their songs, only one of their number one hits uses the, the particular chord progression that all the songs are using these days. But, um, so you've got all kinds of lawsuits going on right now, like uh, Radiohead and their first hit, Creep. They got sued for ripping off this other song, like using the chord progression from that. So they had to give part of their royalties to this other guy that wrote a song that sounded like that. And now Radiohead is suing, I believe, Lana Del Rey or someone for ripping off Creep, the song that they ripped off from someone else. And it's just this you know, circle of suing each other for these copyright claims when um, like the, the art should be, like artists should be, I think, free to rip off as much as they want, like I said, because that's historically how things have happened. And uh, even like classical musicians, you look at some famous classical pieces, a lot of those melodies came from like folk songs. So they just, they just, you know, they hear a good melody and say, oh, I can do something with that. I can do something better with that. You know, I can take that and I can, I can actually do, I can, I can do better. So if you think that you can write a better song than, uh, you know, some famous 
person and you actually do a good job and people like it, then good on you. Now, the, the thing about that is that there's, like I said, there's precedent, at least in music, and there's precedent in mythology. This is one of the big points in this book is that pretty much everyone was copying everyone else. And they, the only way we'd be able to do this science, for instance, and, and this comparative mythology and tracking back mythologies is because the, all, these, all the people um, you know, writing these mythologies were either ripping someone off. Well, now, I'll say I've been using that phrase, you know, ripping off, but it's not really, <clears throat> it's not really ripping off. It's just, uh, that's just the way things work. I guess that's the way, um, whether it's, that's the way any kind of creativity works. It's taking, a, taking an idea and then just uh, like morphing it and transforming it. And whether you get that idea like out of nowhere in your mind or, or you've heard something you've forgotten about it and you kind of re, uh, you know, recreate it in your mind and do something else with it, that's the way it works. With mythologies, what he's arguing is that um, he, he's going against certain traditional ways of looking at mythologies and explaining the commonalities. So, you know, one, one, um, one way of doing this, one hypothesis has been that the similarities between mythologies have been the result of what he calls diffusion. So basically, you know, one, one mythology diffuses into another culture and then it gets adopted by that culture. And so that's kind of like a horizontal transfer like from, from this group living now to this group living now, and now you've got two groups with a similar mythology. Now that's, that diffused mythology might change a bit in the process. It might acquire certain features that were like local to that culture that acquired the new mythology, and so it'll gain a, a different flavor to it. So now when you're comparing those mythologies, they'll be slightly different. They'll have similarities, but there will be difference, differences that are specific to the, the local culture that has preserved their own traditions and inserted them in some way. Um, what he's arguing is that that might happen sometimes, and well, it, and it does happen sometimes. Like um, the, the spread of, for instance, like uh, Christian missionaries all over the world has, has injected a lot, of, uh, biblical, um, a lot of biblical themes into the local culture, which have then been uh, adopted and adapted for those specific cultures. But what he's arguing is that there's a uh, th that overall the the main explanation for a lot of these um, similarities is a common origin. So it's not that one culture is um, kind of spreading their mythology to another one. It's that the, that the their an the ancestors to both mythologies had the same um, the same mythology, and as they developed over the years. Um, and the generations, they might have acquired just, again, just local, local features, just as in, like, languages. That's why languages can be related but different. And so the, the history of, like, stories, the history of human stories, has been one of, like, uh, reworking what was in your past. In essence, you're copying, uh, you're copying your own past. And... Essentially, that's what musicians are doing today because most musicians copying each other are in the same culture. They've got the, the same, they're kind of, they're, they're growing music in the same soil. It's like that is their soil. The, the songs that, we, that we've heard throughout our, um, you know, our childhoods and our young adulthoods, those are our own culture, right? So to, to develop them and to do something new with them is totally natural. And... It's just the the kind of the total corporatization of and commodification of music that has led to this you know the, the ridiculous um, you know things about copyright law, but um, but really it is a, a grand human tradition, and it is uh, and it's it's 
luckily, because of that, you know, we can learn something about history. It's just like in, um, in genetics, um, like David Reich, we'd, I mentioned his book, it was one of my favorite books last year, uh, Who We Are and How We Got There, on the, the relatively recent study of ancient DNA. Because, um, you know, previously it just wasn't available. We had no means of um, doing, um, like, really good uh, extraction and analysis of ancient DNA. We just didn't have the technology. Now it, it's like a million times cheaper than it was when the technology first developed. So it can be done all over the place. And there's a... There's this special feature. Um, I was listening to a uh, an interview with Reich, and he he pointed out that the re the the only reason they're able to do this is because um, bones get preserved in such a way that bone bone material will preserve this DNA. All of the like the flesh and the soft tissue, where you'd think you know the most DNA would be that degrades, but when you just have bones because of a very special feature of bone, I can't remember what the, like the, the chemical like molecular property is, it preserves DNA. Without that, we would not be able to, to study ancient DNA and to get an idea of these population like uh, migrations and all these things. So it's like the same thing with, uh, or a similar thing with mythology. It's like thanks to the, the yeah, human pr propensity for um, like a conservative but... Um, but uh, progressive, you know, changing of the past, we are able to look deep into the past and come to some conclusions about what that past was like. Whereas, uh, just on the surface of things, you'd think that's impossible. And some people do think it's impossible because writing is only five, 6,000 years old. And myths, the, the reason we have myths, um, if they're not transmitted orally and aren't alive today in that sense, is the only way we're able to do that is through writing, you know, finding ancient tablets and, and manuscripts and being able to read what these people wrote down in their time. Um, but because of this, these similarities and the ability to compare these things in a, like a, a kind of tree-like diagram, like a tree of life, or like, uh, like you, you see in, the, in evolutionary studies, because of that, we're then able to get at least a hypothesis of what these ancient myths were like prior to five or 6,000 years ago. And what Witzel argues is that we're able to do this going back as far back as you know, human history can go, and as far back as we can think about history, uh, the history of humanity. So back to you know, so-called the, the mitochondrial Eve, which is the, the most common you know, female ancestor for all humanity, uh, the last common ancestor for mitochondrial DNA. But then through the, you know, the the, the, the first migrations of humanity into Eurasia and into, into Australia. And, you know, so along the, uh, you know, South Asia, India, Southeast Asia into Australia, the, the, these first migrations and the migrations up into Asia, um, Central Asia, Europe. What, uh, what Witzel, like the conclusion that he came to by comparing all these myths, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll give his overall theory in a nutshell, is that he identified kind of two, two regions and two overarching, like, s similar myth structures. The, the first being found in, like, sub-Saharan Africa, um, in um, the uh, Andaman, Island, uh, Andaman Islands um, off the coast of, you know, Southeast Asia between, you know, between India and uh, Southeast Asia. And then in like uh, Papua 
and um, and Australia and Tasmania, the the island off you know Southeast Australia, and that all of these regions, despite their um, despite their geographic spread, share similar uh, similar myths. Let's just put it that way. But then, if you look all everywhere else in the world, in Eurasia, North and South America, there are some similarities with those with those myths, but there is something new that only the only kind of those northern regions share, and that is an overall storyline. Um, like he calls it the first novel. So it's a story from the beginning of creation until the the final end, the final destruction, the end of creation. And um, well, he gets into the the features of it, but those features are shared by the the mythologies of all those peoples and cultures. So from the you know the collected myths in Japan to the Eddas in um, um, Norse mythology and the, the Iranian mythologies and the uh, um, the even the, the so the Near Eastern mythologies so from Mesopotamia up through even including the Bible and how all of these oh and the Greek mythology of course Greek and Roman and how all of these myths that they, they uh, oh in India of course the all of these mythologies they share an overall storyline. And so while you can, if you find like one detail that's shared between uh, a whole bunch of cultures, if it's just a small detail, then you can't, you can't uh, come to too firm a conclusion about just one small detail. But if you find an entire sequence of details, like very specific, which essentially forms its own storyline, and then you find it everywhere essentially, that he argues is a sign that they all came from an original storyline. And that this spread, you know, historically, um, and that because because of its extensive, you know, geographic spread, it must have, first of all, it must have come before the the peopling of the North Americas, uh, or of the Americas, so before um, the first humans inhabited North and South America, and it must come, you know, before the the, the split between like um, the the, Euro the the well the Europeans and the Asians, like there must be. Um, there must have been a common origin for for this mythological storyline, and um, that is kind of the overall the argument that he makes. And you know, it's a thick book. <clears throat> what he does is is basically, you know, he's really yeah, he probably I, I guess even kind of goes a bit overboard in in, in proving his case, um, but he. He kind of he goes through all the features of the what he calls the Laurasian storyline. That's the northern, like the Eurasian uh, storyline, in distinction to the uh, to the Gondwana storyline, which is kind of the southern, you know, South African, um, you know, Southeast Asia, mostly uh, like Australian mythology, and then gets into all of the supporting evidence for that. So, like from linguistics, physical anthropology, genetics, archaeology. And um, and then goes from there. So a ton of details, a ton of um, like examples from uh, just tons of world mythologies. So like that's why I said like, like if you, if mythology interests you at all, it's very interesting. And there's a ton of sources to like go and you know so you can go and read um, you know these myths if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, very cool in that sense. Well, I haven't gotten as far as I would have liked uh, into the book yet, but uh, there are several features of it that um, 
are really impressive. Uh, the first, as you were saying, Harrison, is that, you know, un unlike a lot of other uh, books that discuss uh, mythology, um, Frazier and Joseph Campbell uh, being an Eliade, as you mentioned, uh, he's, what he's attempting to do in his, in his comparative mytho mythological approach is to go back tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, so he quite often you know, draws on dates uh, from 50,000 BC to 100,000 BC. And um, it just gives you, uh, for a number of reasons, a, a kind of sense of uh, the scope of his investigation. Um, I'm not steeped in, uh, in mythological research or, or background, uh, but uh, one of the most fascinating things about it is how he is able to look at uh, the approaches of a Joseph Campbell, who uh, you know many people have read *The Power of Myth* and have, and have seen his programs, and that might be the extent to which they they have come to appreciate the value and the tradition of mythology. And what he's able to do is he's able to narrow in on uh, on the work of a Joseph Campbell or Claude Lévi-Strauss, and he's able to say, uh, you know, that, that's all well and good, but, but look at how limited it is and how limiting it, limiting it is in, in approaching uh, how much more we're capable of learning and thinking about mythology. Um, and he does this with, with several different schools of thought that I was uh, unfamiliar with up until starting to read Witzel's book. Um, Another thing that he brings up in his, uh, in his um, writing is that uh, you know, we've, we've come to think of the works of, uh, of Jung as a kind of uh, uh, predecessor of, of Joseph Campbell and, and the thinking of the archetypes and, and the myths contained within archetypes as this kind of um, universal uh, uh, kind of psychodynamic or, or psychic um, uh, mythology that's inherent in every human being. And Witzel says no. Um, it, it may exist among a certain uh, portion of, of the world's population, but it's certainly not comprehensive, and it certainly doesn't account for many other types of ideas that, that come up when you look at mythology more closely and that go far beyond uh, the past few thousand years. So that was also fascinating. Um, and uh, what else is there? I, I mean, there were so many, I mean, that, this is, if, if, you're not, if you're not used to a dense uh, kind of academic, um, it's readable, certainly, but he's throwing out so many concepts and ideas uh, of what someone who has been studying mythology and has lived uh, mythology for so many decades. Uh, you know, it, this is a, you're entering his world uh, effectively. And, um, and it does take a little time and patience to, to get to understand what he's driving at. And even early on in the book, he promises to uh, not only discuss or get to why an examination or, or the use of comparative mythology, which is, as he defines it, the kind of, it's a, it's a historical, it's a geographical, uh, it's a comprehensive uh, look at mythology, incorporating all of these different um, 
types of analysis, uh, it, which you know he explains gives us a, a much fuller, broader view of of the world's mythology and promises. I haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, but promises to um, to kind of get to the meaning and the purpose of these mythologies. So I'm looking forward to continuing to read this um, and, and appreciate where he's coming from and just how much uh, research and, and erudition Witzel has. Um, I've never read anything like it before. Um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where it all goes. Well, um, I think I mentioned the the kind of storylines. I think I'll just for the sake of our readers, I'll I'll give the overall structure for these stories. First, just to back up and expand on on what he's saying um, with this whole common origin thing. He's he's arguing that um, if you go back far enough, you'll find one mythology, essentially. Like, uh, yeah, if you go back far enough, you'll find a mythology that he calls Pangean. So this would be like the first mythology shared by, you know, all the groups I guess that 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 have contributed something to the history of of mythology that survives in some way, or has survived, in in a manner in which we can then know part of it. So I guess hypothetically it's possible that there were other myths that uh, kind of just disappeared and no one has any record of, but the the myths that we do have that can be traced back uh, to a common origin will be this Pangean um, mythology. And then from there, there's a split. Um, and this split will um, coincide with the time that the first humans started um, like inhabiting um, like the, the Eurasian landmass, basically, like migrating north up into Europe and, uh, and, they, and up into like, uh, you know, parts of East Asia and Central Asia and stuff like that. And then expanding from there all through South Asia, again, Southeast Asia, the North and South America, et cetera. So the, at that point, you have the introduction of this, what he calls Laurasian, Laurasian mythology. And then um, there's a branching there. So the, the Laurasian is kind of like this new, this, this, uh, this new storyline that gets introduced. And then the continuation of the Pangean myths, which, were, that, which are um, preserved mostly, like I said, in uh, like Australia and uh, South, Sub-Saharan Africa. So the, if... Like the, the different elements of what he calls the Gondwana mythology, um, many of them can still be found incorporated into the Laurasian mythology. So this gets into the kind of the, the whole copying thing that I was mentioning at the beginning, um, kind of like a remix or just mixing it into a, a new creation. So the Gondwana mythology, these are some of the features. So earth, heaven, and the sea are pre-existent. So there's no, there's no origin mythology for these things. They're just, they're just there. They're the, um, you know, the ground, the, the pre-existing ground, and then everything develops, all the myths develop on top of that. So it's just taken for granted that the, that the earth, heaven, and seas exist. And the, so the, there is a high god in, in or moving towards heaven who sends down his son, and um, there's totems, like um, kind of like tribal and, and animal spirit type things and stuff like that. And then the focus of, the, the creation focuses on the creation of humans. And they, humans are often created from a tree or from clay. And so we can see a, a carryover from that in the, 
you know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, of Adam being created from clay. Sorry, Adam. Um, and then along this kind of proto storyline, um, which is never actually in Gondwana myth, all these myths are kind of separated. He's just kind of putting them together in a and saying, well, there's, there's a kind of storyline that can be made by putting all these myths together, and this is the storyline that he gives. So these humans who have been created then uh, show hubris and are punished by a flood. Um, a flood, the, the flood is actually a, a true human universal in mythology. Like, you can find flood myths everywhere, from sub-Saharan Africa, everywhere else. And then it's often a trickster deity or deities that bring culture to the humans. And then local tribes emerge. So that's kind of like the the common shared features that can cohere in a type of like proto narrative in the Gondwana mythology. Now, like I said, some of those carry over into the the newly developed Laurasian mythology, <coughs> um, which adds a whole bunch of stuff. So the Laurasian mythology is that there is an initial creation of everything, you know, out of from nothing or from chaos. So now you can see this again in the in the you know in Genesis where God creates the God creates everything from an initial chaos, and then there is uh, Father Heaven and Mother Earth are created. Um, Father Heaven then engenders two generations of gods. You know, in the Greek Greek mythology, these are the Titans and the Olympians. This follows. Uh, this is followed by four or five generations or ages, um, depending on the region. Um, so there's, you know, mostly four, but some cultures have five generations or ages. Um, heaven is pushed up and the sun is released. The current gods defeat or kill their predecessors. There's the killing of a dragon and there's a sacred drink. Humans um, are introduced as the somatic or bodily descendants of the sun god. So humans aren't necessarily created from tree or clay, though they might be if that little mytheme got carried on. But more commonly, humans are like the direct descendants of a sun god. And then they too, like in the old mythology, show hubris. Um, or it might be a god that shows hubris and are then also pu uh, punished by a flood. And then also trickster deities bring culture. Humans spread. Um, this is often the emergence of nobles. Um, like a kingly line, and then, only then, uh, local history begins. And these are then followed by the final destruction of the world. Afterwards, afterwards a new heaven and earth emerge. So this is the first time, um, whereas previously, kind of like history was viewed as kind of this eternal, like infinite series, I guess. Like there was, there was always uh, a heaven and earth, and... Um, and everything just would go in the future. There was no no expectation of like a final destruction, but all of a sudden this whole storyline emerges with these you know generations of gods and ages of ages epochs of of the creation followed by followed by the 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 history of of uh, mankind and then all leading up to and culminating in a final destruction and um, and then new creation. So this is this is the new element that was involved and which has influenced you know all, all um, pretty much all Western and Eastern culture from now from then on, and which has even carried on and well and and not just that too like um, not just that but even in um, now well nowadays you could even call it probably an almost universal thing because the that Northern um, mythology has also 
um, gone like back into Africa. So along the you know north and east Africa, historically there was all there were all kinds of there was all kinds of trade and movement. So th these myths have kind of spread over the last thousands of years all through Africa. Um, the only reason you're able to find kind of these um, Gondwana cultures that have preserved more of a um, more of a, like a, a pure original mythology is that they they were kind of like isolated. They didn't have a lot of um, um, like mixing or influence from from the more northern influenced cultures. So you're able to find these kind of like holdovers of of um, of mythologies that were uninfluenced by the northern mythology. But then even the northern mythologies, like the you know spreading east, that you have the population um, and the like kind of the first settlers of Taiwan. And from Taiwan, you get the peopling like the and the pop the, the populating of the like the Pacific Islands. And um, and so that kind of overlaid onto the like original Papuans that were living there, and that spread even to even to Australia until today, when we have this global culture for the most part, where there's except for like the what are they called the Sentinelese on the one Andaman Island who who uh, have like had zero contact with um, you know other humans. They're still uh, pretty much like a hunter gatherer tribe with no contact. And was it just a year or two ago? Um, some researcher or something got uh, you know got killed trying to, to go and meet them, but for the most part, the 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 just through you know just through contact and and trade and movement and the internet now it's kind of like this global thing where if we were to start today and move a thousand years into the future everything would be kind of mixed from this point on, but um, but that's not all that's not how it has always been. Um, one of the questions I have that I'm hoping to look into, you know, once I finish the book, is to try to get an idea of how exactly this happened. Because one of the things from reading David Reich's book is that it seems like with the, all the different my like uh, population migrations, that like um, like the initial split, for instance, between Western Europeans and uh, East Asians, is that it seems like there's been relative um, isolation like between those two groups for thousands and thousands of years I'll have to look through the book again to get the details this is the thing I this is something I want to get into because it seems like um, like reading his book you get the the impression that despite all the mixing that has occurred you know you have this group of people that was living for thousands of years and then this group and then they this group migrated over here and that mixed the genes here and then that group was like isolated for several thousand years and then moved over here and you know mixed with the people that were living there but um, the impression I get from looking at his book is that all these things can kind of be traced and that um, like if, if that region is Western Europe, for instance, all that's happening in almost complete and total isolation from what's happening like in East Asia. So what I want to really get into is, is see if, you, if, you, if, if it can be traced back to a point where, um, where you can say, okay, well, this is the region where the original like Laurasian mythology must have been from, where, from where all the groups moved over. Or if you can say that it was a bit later than that, but the reason it got into like East Asia, for instance, is from this migration of these people or this influence between these two cultures that that uh, you know where you might have diffusion. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's possible yet because like he wrote this book and finished it just as ancient DNA was starting to be studied. So he wasn't able to use that. The genetics he uses in this is primarily. Um, 
Y chromosome DNA and uh, mitochondrial DNA. And I think you can probably only go so far with that. Um, what I'd be really interested to, to see is someone who has like expertise in those areas to kind of read this book and then use the, like the latest ancient DNA research to see if, if it can be, um, if it can be like correlated or like um, compared or tested against that, that new science. Because um, Witzel's base, Witzel hypothesizes like a kind of South Asian origin, so maybe like uh, you know Northern India, maybe from where all these groups, from where for from where the original Laurasian mythology then spread, you know, east and west and north. Um, but I don't know if that's possible yet. Which makes me th think like if it isn't possible to find like one origin point like that, um, it makes me wonder if. Um, if we might have to go in the more like diffusion hypothesis area where maybe there was in some way, I don't know how, like a kind of like universal culture, kind of like we have today. Um, of course there was no internet back then, but, um, but, and, and like apparently from the ancient DNA, like the, you know, uh, genetics from vastly separated regions didn't mix very much. So, I'm wondering how that might be possible. I think it, uh, if he's right, then it must be possible in some way. But I think that's kind of where the research ha research has to go from now on to basically <clears throat> um, kind of just either like confirm or refine his theory about the actual um, historical spread, basically. Well, another thing that I, I found really interesting about the book uh, one particular uh, myth that he talks about, a myth theme, I think you'd, you'd call it, is the, the idea of history progressing through uh, different ages and how that's, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was Laurasian and it was a specifically Laurasian uh, idea, a myth that, you know, like with the Greeks, you had the, the golden age and then whatever, platinum, silver, bronze, and then, you know, but the interesting thing was he said that that the Native Americans had a similar uh, myth. At least some tribes had the that same myth, and that you know that obviously dated back you know at least twenty thousand years ago. You know when it's hypothesized that they you know populated the Americas, North America, but they had a very optimistic uh, look on it. It didn't go from like gold to bronze. It went in the opposite direction. So it's it's really interesting to me that at some point in time that you can have these stories and that they will st they will remain for 20,000 years the same basic structure but that it can be completely inverted you know so that at one point you know if it, it is true that it, they did have a common origin that it that it was one story but then you know for whatever reasons you know what whether it's due to loca you know just you, you found the new world basically you know and now it's like you're super optimistic because things can only get better from here you know and then versus you know the greeks and you know ever, uh, the others who are just like life just keeps getting worse and worse and worse for us um whatever reason it is that that, that story um uh, remain it still keeps the same foundations but then it it com it becomes inverted and i don't did he talk about the uh, the meaning of that or anything in the later chapters of the book? Not yet. No. I've still got like a chapter and a half left, so I haven't gotten to the, the one you mentioned. Like at the very last chapter is kind of his take on the, you know, the grand meaning of it all and what the, what the, 
the meaning and purpose of these myths might be, but I haven't mm-hmm. read that yet. So far, he's just kind of still making the case. So I think then later in the, you know, maybe next week's show, we should give the yeah. grand meaning. <laughs> we need to go back, give no, everyone the, the grand meaning of, of all mythology. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of the point of his, <clears throat> of his book, in a sense. I mean, he's saying uh, human beings all have these very basic questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Mm-hmm. Where are we going? You know, what is the meaning of all of this? And, and that's um, sort of the, the, the promise uh, that he makes in, in attempting to go through this uh, methodology of his, to, to, look at, to look at all these myths, to look at how they were spread through time, geographically, how they were changed, what their origins are. And, um, you know, it, it's maybe, you know, Maybe this is the book or, or one of several parts of an answer uh, to, you know, this point of time in, in, our, in humanity's history. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe he's on to something. Uh, that's certainly what I'm looking forward to finding out. Um, because if, if it's true that there are some uh, mythomemes or, or clusters of mythologies that tell this grand story, from beginning to end of humanity, uh, from, from its birth to its destruction and everything in between, um, maybe there's a reason why these stories have lasted for as long as they have. Um, maybe they have, uh, aside from tradition and ritual and, and the texts and the, and the by-mouth uh, continuance of these stories, there's something so essential about them uh, something so uh, truthful that, um, that, that's been lost in, in modern culture, even though we have Jordan Peterson to go back at least a few thousand years in discussing biblical mythology, um, maybe these even long-term, more long-term mythologies say something uh, even more deeply uh, or in addition to uh, incredibly deep and, and profound um, statements of, of what our reality truly is. Maybe they've been around for so long for a reason. Well, I want to read just an example of uh, what he's talking about here. Now, first of all, I have to see if I can find out where this place actually is. Does anyone know where Togo is? Togo? It's just down the road. <laughs> I think it might be... Well, I don't know. Um, I'll just read. So this is a myth from the Basari people in Togo. Um, Outside Laurasia and other African Andaman versions. Okay, so um, I'll just read this story from the Basari. It tells of Unumbote, high god and creator of beings. So Unumbote, god, made a human being. The man was Unele, man. Then Unumbote next made Opel, antelope. Then Unambute made Uko, snake, named snake. When these three were made, there were no other trees but one, Bubao, oil palm. At that time, the earth had not yet been pounded smooth. Unambote said to the three, You must pound the ground where you are sitting. Unambote gave them seeds of all kinds and said, Plant these. Unambute went away. Unambote came back. He saw that the people had not yet pounded the ground, but had planted the seeds. One of the seeds had sprouted and grown. It was a tree that had grown tall and was bearing fruit. The fruits were red. 
Now, every seven days, Unambute returned and plucked one of the red fruits. One day, Snake said, We too would like to eat these fruits. Why, was, why, must, be, why must we be hungry? Antelope said, But we don't know this fruit. Then man and his wife, who had not been there at first, took some of the fruit and ate it. Then Unambute came down from heaven. Unambote asked, Who ate the fruit? Man and woman answered, We ate it. Unambute asked, Who told you that you should eat of it? Man and woman replied, Snake told us. Unambute asked, Why did you listen to Snake? Man and woman said, We were hungry. Unambute questioned Antelope, Are you hungry too? Antelope said, Yes, I am hungry too. I'd like to eat grass. Since then, Antelope has lived in the bush, eating grass. Unambute then gave Edi, sorghum, to man, yams, and millet. And since the people had cultiv have cultivated the land, and, oh, and since then, people have cultivated the land. But snake was given by Unambote a medicine, a jojo, so that it would bite people. So then, Witzel comments on this. It is remarkable that, differently from the Bible, this myth, this myth does not speak of a primordial guilt or of an expulsion from paradise or of a punishment of the snake. It merely assigns roles to the living beings and specifies the foods they will have to live on. The only punishment one can, zern, can discern from this tale is of humans who have been victims of snake bites ever since and presumably die. So when I first read that, I was thinking, oh, wow, that's, that's really Adam and Eve right there. Um, you know, right down to the snake and eating of the fruit and, uh, you know, God saying, well, you know, who told you you could eat this stuff? And they say, oh, the snake told us. And like, and this is from a culture that um, I'm guessing, you know, given Witzel's kind of, uh, um, uh, kind of rigorous study is not influenced at all by the biblical tale. Like this is an original, like ancient story that just happens to be um, something very common to the biblical story. Um, which is all over the place. Like he, he points out that this is a, a very common story of this primordial guilt. And um, there are even some other myths, like he says there's a, a Polynesian one. I couldn't find it in the book. I, I hadn't highlighted it. A, Polyn uh, a Polynesian myth that basically says the same thing um, as the Adam and Eve story about the forbidden fruit in, parent, uh, forbidden fruit in paradise. So this is a common story, but just reading that, just like when you actually read it, like in print, it's like, oh wow, you know, there are some really amazing correlations between, you know, even a, a myth as as recent as Adam and Eve, because relatively it, that is a a recent myth. Now, um, just on that subject, I wanted to get to to bring in a, a more specific example, like relating to the Bible. Um, and this relates back to, to the whole thing about, um, you know, the thing I said in the intro about the, 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 the constant remixing and copying of, of myths and structures and stories. Because um, we haven't talked about it on Mind Matters yet, I don't think, but we did a truth perspective a few years ago with um, Russell Gemerkin on his book, um, Plato and the Creation of the Hebrew Bible, I believe was the name of it. And he makes the a really good case for the Bible being not thousands of years old, like, you know, 5,000 years old for the earliest parts, but being essentially like 2,300 years old. That the, that the, the first edition of the Bible was basically written around, you know, 280, 300 BC in the, the Hellenistic era. So this is post-Alexander. And that um, any kind of, um, well, basically it was written um, 
with a, a goal in mind and written as a history, but at that point. So it wasn't like there were, it's, it's not like Moses wrote, you know, the first few books and then a thousand years later, bits and pieces got added on. He's arguing that it was written as a single book around this time. And all these parts were put together, maybe incorporating some older texts, but putting them again all into a new form. And there we have our Bible. And he argues that there are several sources for that Bible and several inspirations for that book, essentially that overall that overarching narrative, and that the the writers of the Bible used the the Library of Alexandria to essentially create their national myth, their their national history, which was essentially a fiction. Um, um, like a, a history that incorporated, you know, details from all kinds of um, other mythologies and histories that would have been available at the Library of Alexandria, and then, it, like, distilled down and rewritten into this new form as the the founding document for the, you know, the new people of Israel that would be like reformed and reshaped with this document um, to create a new state, essentially a new nation, um, and. That in itself is kind of an example of, of this process of the, the kind of wholesale copying and, and borrowing and reincorporating of, of older and, and foreign stories into a new one that, 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 um, that at the same time holds on to some more local traditions. So that's what Gamerkin argues too, is that there are some kind of distinctly Near Eastern um, you know, Mediterranean, like well, Eastern Mediterranean, more like Middle Eastern elements and laws that got incorporated into it. But primarily, it is a, a Hellenistic document, modeled on primarily Plato's Laws, um, his second kind of like utopian book after the Republic. So, um, and th that he actually used that, or that he, that they, like whoever wrote the the Bible, actually used that as kind of like a a template for composing this, you know, this grand narrative with, with histories and um, songs and, um, you know, prophets and, all, and essentially plays, too, if you consider um, the book of Job. So the, that as, that's just a, a kind of a specific, a specific example of this type of, um, like, copying and borrowing. And on top of that, so, well, inside of that, you've got who knows where the, you know, all the details of the, you know, Adam and Eve came from. I'm not sure about the, you know, I haven't followed the latest research. If anyone has ideas for like, oh, they got that from this, or I don't know. Um, it's possible. But that, wherever they got it from, hypothetically, you can trace that back to like a common ancestor with this, you know, this myth from from Togo, or Toto, what was it, with uh, Unumbote. So I just find that, like, really interesting. But also, um, so once you know that people do this, it, it makes the whole study of kind of ancient mythology that much more interesting um, because, like I said, we've known, like, being humans, we should know and, like, we do know that this has happened throughout all human history. If you just look at um, like Virgil's Aeneid, he wrote that book as a Roman version of, the, of Homer's Odyssey. So basically, you know, this Greek legend, uh, Homer, wrote this great epic poem, and then along comes Virgil and says, well, you know, I can do him one better. I can, I can, make, I can 
like totally appropriate his storyline and make Aeneas the hero that totally outdoes Odysseus. And we'll have like this Roman version of uh, like this, this Roman founder, um, Aeneas, and um, incorporate all the details from, from uh, the Odyssey and like so the the main the overall plot structure and the 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 scenes and all this stuff and basically just use Aeneas as a stand-in for Odysseus and create this new story and then like even today like uh, James Joyce one of the most famous novels ever written Ulysses was used uh, the Odyssey as basically a you know a structure for his novel and Oh Brother Where Art Thou by the Coen Brothers um, same thing that's what. Uh, that's what we, that's what people that's what story writers have been doing to stories and with stories for the entire history of humanity like um um just shamelessly ripping off other stories but uh but at the same time making something like new and great at at the same time because um because it is different like like the old stories can kind of get boring after a while right so you got to you got to reinvigorate them but even when you reinvigorate them like like you guys were pointing out, they stay the same. Like it keeps the same structure, or it can at least. You can change the structure, but there's something about this particular structure that has stayed with humans for tens of thousands of tens of thousands of years of um, uh, of tens of thousands of years of history and of adding new elements and writing new stories. But at the same time, somehow that plot structure has been preserved to a greater or lesser degree. All over the world, which is pretty uh, pretty amazing. So I think that um, the next the next grand development in human mythology should be to take this exact structure and you know write some new myths based on it, which will like given modern culture it'll turn into like a blockbuster movie or something. But even that that would be pretty cool because you'd you'd at least be getting some uh, something that's withstood the test of time. Um, as opposed to a lot of stuff that gets made today. Well, what you said just made me think that, um, you know, for future shows, as we continue on this track, uh, even beyond Witzel's book, that we can kind of look at some texts and see how they were um, reappropriating uh, certain myths and stories uh, for, for political mm-hmm. and sociological and cultural control over a given set of people. Um, that that the intent behind uh, creating certain, uh, recreating certain myths and reintroducing them into a, a culture um, <clears throat> could have, you know, there could be ulterior motives behind it. Um, and if so, what, what, what were those motives? What could they have been? Um, another point that uh, I just, uh, I just kind of liked about Witzel's attitude towards all of this is, you know, he's, he's saying, Follow me here. Uh, listen, listen to the approach I'm taking to going back in time and doing this comparative mythology. I haven't come up with a, a better method than uh, deriving, you know, than how to derive the significance of certain myths and, and the history of mythology. I don't think anyone else has. Here are the reasons. Uh, if you disagree, whether you're a linguist, an anthropologist, a uh, um, a mathematician, a biblical scholar, uh, a, a psychologist, whatever your field of endeavor is, tell me what the criticism is, and we'll, we'll explore it and examine it together. Otherwise, 
these are my criticisms of all the approaches that have been taken towards uh, looking at uh, mythology um, in, in, the, in the kind of intellectual and academic sphere for the past few hundred years. And this is what I think is, is really uh, one of the best approaches I can think of to examining all this. So I really like his attitude. And in, in distinction you know, to, to this other attitude where uh, people look at a certain uh, approach to mythology or a certain approach to text, um, Bible thumpers taking the New Testament perfectly literally, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews taking the Old Testament or, or even the Talmud, um, even more even more so, uh, totally literally, and, and extrapolating all kinds of meanings that are convenient for their current ideology. Um, and that's where it ends. That's the, that's the beginning and the end. And they, uh, the trap is, is, I think, of people narrowing in on a particular way of looking at mythology or a particular mythology itself and deciding that there is no other answer, there is no other perspective. Um, so I think he's opening a lot of doors here and, uh, it's, it's a reason to delve into it. Well, just given the, like you were uh, saying, Harrison, about the role that myths have played, you know, you're talking about the creation of the Bible and the creation of a national identity and the creation of, you know, like when the, the, who is Virgil ripping off, you know, Odysseus, so for that national identity. And when you when you're tracing it back, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, and if he's correct and there's an actual or you know, one location, you know, what you're what it sounds like is like it sounds like you're talking about two distinct political identities, you know, between the Laurasian and the Gondwalan that have that it you know, were at the the origins of human you know, consciousness, human, you know, evolution, if you want to use that word, that there were two distinct political identities that existed thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, What, how, you know, whatever that looked like, and that, you know, just through the, just through, the, you know, people moving, you know, just climate disasters, people, you know, traveling and, and different tribal identities developing, that they've just continued to um, elaborate on those basic original um, identities, and you and just manipulated them for whatever purposes that suited their their needs at the time, you know, to explain their surroundings and 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 whatnot. But that it has just over time, it's it's fractured, but it still retains a lot of the similar you know foundation that it had whatever forty, fifty, sixty thousand years ago. Well, any other points? That you guys wanted to make make on this? Uh, how are we doing for time? Hour. Hour. Okay. Well, I'll just uh, maybe I'll just briefly go over one other example. Um, like the the interest, the main you know the main interesting thing that he's identified in here is that uh, that overall storyline, right? The it's got like twelve points, I think, to it. But within each of those twelve points, you'll have, you'll find variations. Like you pointed out the 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 inversion of the the four ages and how they went from like a kind of like entropic to a more creative and uplifting and hopeful attitude in certain other mythologies. So within any of the of the the shared themes, you'll find um, 
new and kind of like revised takes on them, of course. New, de new details added, but just within the overall structure. Kind of like with, uh, you know, taking the, the Odyssey and just completely rewriting it to the point where it's almost, um, almost unrecognizable, like in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Unless you're really paying attention or unless you have a, like a prior um, familiarity with the Odyssey, you might not even see the connection to it. But, um, so the, the other interesting thing to, like the other interesting angle is to look at the, the development of differences. He's primarily, he's primarily interested, I think, in finding the, finding the commonalities, but at the same time, of course, he has, he has to look at all the differences. But I think it's within the differences that, uh, that um, you can kind of go off in totally different directions and uh, just with, with, a, with a different goal in mind. So within these structures, you then look at at how th how things change and the reasons behind them. So of course, like like you said, Alan, you can look at the political motivations um, because a lot of the a lot of the Roman adoption of of Greek mythology, for instance, was for like explicitly political reasons, is to to usurp Greece as the you know as the the greatest um, the greatest place on earth, essentially, and the the most powerful. And then in the if we telescope down even further into the the last years of the Roman Republic and the first years of the empire of the imperial system, then then you'll see even more appropriation. So, like Ovid and um, a lot of the a lot of the like Roman poets and, and writers were writing explicitly for the purpose of promoting Augustus, for instance, as the first emperor, and taking all kinds of myths and um, and religious ideas, and then associating them with Augustus in order to like raise him up as the, as the you know the god Augustus, and that that was even going on with Pompey and Caesar um, in a in a more um, in a less um, let's say less extreme version I'd say so like Pompey and and Caesar and uh, Mark Antony were all kind of associating them themselves with with gods in such a way that was kind of new for Roman society. Um, they were kind of experimenting with these associations with gods. Um, Caesar, of course, kind of capitalizing on his descent from um, Venus as well as Aeneas um, to have this kind of like royal and godly pedigree, but also associating uh, himself with Romulus, the founder of Rome, and then um, once kind of the, the Romulian mythology was developed around the, the end of the Roman Republic, Augustus then totally appropriated that for himself to associate himself with Augustus, or to, to himself with Romulus. And it was all for these, it was all for these political purposes. It was like, um, it was like if we were to, well, if you look at the, a more humorous example, you look at um, like the, the kind of memes that portray Trump as as kind of like this divine savior kind of thing, like or or the like God Emperor Trump thing, like where you've got his face on like these you know these massive like um, um, like video game kind of badasses. Like it, it was the same kind of thing going on back then, but it was more serious back then. Like it like it would be today. It would be as if the like the White House um, like press corps or like like PR department was creating these memes for themselves and being totally serious about them. Mm -hmm. Like that's what was going on in, in uh, like the first years of the, 
in the years of the first Roman emperors, for instance. And, um, and, and so there, there's that, there's the, the political angle, there's the kind of the, the, the imitation of, the imitation of other, um, other cultures and other traditions as a means of um, kind of basking in their glory, but at the same time trying to usurp them, to, to do them, again, to one-up them. This, this was also what the early Christian writers did. So even though all this stuff was going on with the, the Roman emperors usurping all of these other like traditions and, and myths for themselves, then the Christians came along and said, well, you know, we can do better than them. So they appropriated all of the same kind of myths and stuff to, to elevate Jesus above that. So they said, so they were essentially looking at all of the imperial propaganda and then applying that to, to Jesus in the Gospels. So it's like, well, you know, Augustus and all of the emperors, they were, you know, they're presented as these godly, be- godly beings, the, the, the rulers of the earth, the rulers of the cosmos. And um, so what the Christian writers did is just took all of those things, all of those names and like images and symbols and associations and applied them to Jesus. And so now Jesus was the, was the, um, um, was bigger, better, more powerful than the Roman emperors. Um, all by, and so they're all like appropriating the same myths from each other and take, you know, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. And in the, in the process, we have these just amalgamations of all these different traditions and, uh, and symbols and images that get, uh, get put into this, uh, to this, into this one character. So, and I think that's, even though Jordan Peterson doesn't talk about it, like, he, you know, he's not a, he, he's not a, you know, a great historian. He, I think he, he identified the, the kind of, um, the, I don't know how you'd put it, the, just the spirit of the thing when he talks about, like, the, the, the character of, of Jesus Christ as this kind of, like, um, epitome, epitome and amalgam of like, you take all the, all the greatest, all, all the traits of all the great heroes and you put them all into one and then you get like this distillation of, of the heroic nature of someone and then you, that's, that's the character you've got. And, and, you, and you get that by, by that, that's the process that happens in, any, in the creation of any heroic character like historically in any mythology is that because all of those characters have been the distillations of all these other great ones. It's like, Oh, I like that, you know, that they've got something going with their, you know, Odysseus. So I'm going to take that feature of Odysseus and add it with that feature of, you know, Hercules or whatever, or any other character and make this, this super, super divine, awesome being. And, And until you get like the, 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 the amalgam and distillation of all of those features into one. And so, um, it's just an interesting process well, to look at and think about. Just as an aside, you know, William Shakespeare said, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. And there have been uh, folks who have said that even Shakespeare's writings weren't really totally original. He was drawing on a lot mm-hmm. of stories and, and, uh, and folk tales and, yeah. and ideas that were pre-existing. He, just, uh, he was just an extraordinary talent and was able to put it together and... and popularized them for an audience that was uh, ready to hear them in the way that he was ready to present. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, well, and Shakespeare, like, like his, uh, his play on Julius Caesar was, um, you know, he used as his inspiration Plutarch's biography of, of Caesar, I believe. And then it's the same thing today with movie scripts and novels. It's like um, whenever there's an adaptation of a, 
of a novel into a movie, it's the same process going on. Um, like anyone who, who adapts, whether it's a, a previous version of the same movie or a novel or uh, a TV show or a video game, it's like they're trying to, um, in the process, they're trying to make something you know, better of it. Depending on the source material, they often, you know, they might fail horribly, like pretty much every video game adaptation that's been made into a movie. But the, but, um, but sometimes it might just be a, a fault of the of the medium. I don't know, but but rarely, but sometimes you get a movie version that's better than the book. For instance, it's rare, but it happens every once in a while. And um, and then you get uh, well, and then go, it works the other way too. Like with novelizations of films. It's like I, I um, for some reason, I, I was thinking about it recently, just how, how weird it is. Like, it, it seemed weird to me to make a novelization of a film. So then I, I did a little research to see if they're still doing it, because I know, like, in the... It was big... I don't know when it started, really. I think when I was re researching it, it's actually been around for a long time. And, in like, in the 70s and the 80s, I remember, and in the 90s, there'd be novelizations. Anytime a, a movie would come out, there'd be a novelization of it, whether it was, like, a superhero movie or, like... Um, um, like a horror or a sci-fi movie, if it wasn't originally a book, they'd you know they'd pay someone to do a novelization of it. Like the Star Wars movies, for instance, it's like they they were book uh, movies first, but books came out very soon afterwards to the point where they became pretty popular in themselves. So I was reading um, an article about novelizations with one of the big authors. Um, I think it might have been the he might have been the guy that did one of the one of the Star Wars adaptations, but he was giving his perspective on it, and he saw the novelization. Um, like uh, scene or you know process as being one that that that's actually very creative and very good because he can he can watch a movie that's because movies are movie scripts are what like you know average ninety pages or something hundred pages I think it's around there and that's when you look at a movie script it's like it's mostly blank page you get you've got dialogue and little bits of like um, you know scene settings and stuff like that and. When you actually novelize that, he was saying, it's like you, you get the chance to, first of all, change all the, thing, all the parts you think are bad and add characters in and add all kinds of stuff in to make an actual like, good story out of it, especially if you're doing a, a movie that you've been paid to write a novel for that you don't really like. Well, you can, you, like for him, he could actually make it into something that he would enjoy reading. So it, it, just, it works in all directions. And, uh, and so sometimes you might get a novelization that's better than the movie. Which is also kind of weird, because those things are just sold to be, you know, just made to. Well, I was going to say they're made to be sold in air in airports, but um, but again, reading this article, apparently there's actually a, a readership for for novelizations. So people that uh, they were describing, it's like people who like the movie and are fans of the movie will actually want to re-experience that. You know that feeling of watching the movie, but without necessarily watching the movie, they want more material, basically. So they'll read the novel too. And uh, well, wasn't yeah. uh, two thousand one a Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke? And then after the film was made, Arthur C. Clarke actually made it into this great sci-fi novel that it became. I, I don't know if it was built on if it was based on a short story at first, but like it's a. It's a common, um, like off. It's a common myth <laughs> that uh, that the the movie was based on the book, 
Actually, the, the, the movie and the book were worked on at the same time, like uh -huh. in collaboration with Kubrick and uh, Arthur C. Clarke. So I'm not sure if there was a short story first, but, um, but they were working on both of them at the same time. And, uh, and so I think, I can't remember which, if the book got published shortly after the movie or around the same time, but, um, but uh, it was actually a collaboration between both of them. So Clarke kind of um, did his own thing with the book to a certain extent, and then Kubrick did his own thing with the movie um, to another extent. <laughs> and uh, and they, they're actually, they've got the same kind of, again, the same structure, like the same kind of overall thing going on, but they're very different in other ways because Kubrick was kind of notorious for that, for, um, for using the, the plot line, essentially, of his, of his script, of his story, which often came from another source. Like pr I'm pretty sure most of the stuff that he worked on um, was like a novel or a screenplay already written, like uh, Dr. Strangelove was uh, a novel beforehand. Um, um, 2001 was you know, developed concurrently with Arthur C. Clarke's novel, and um, the, uh, the Shining. The Shining was a novel. Um, Eyes Wide Shut was a novella. But he'd take that and then essentially use that structure to say something completely different, like on another symbolic level. And that's like he said, you know, in, in interviews that that's actually what he was doing. Kind of like David Lynch, he doesn't, he won't, he's very rarely would would give a hint of what he was actually trying to do with the movie and what he was actually the story he was actually telling. But um, if you, um, so that's another thing, <laughs> is, is the like the use of a plot structure as only like the skeleton to hold like a second layer narrative that you're t talking about. That, that would be like an allegorical way of writing. So there are allegorical interpretations of the of the Bible, for instance, where it's like you've got your your surface words that you're looking at, your surface narrative, but that that there's a hidden meaning behind the words. So. Um, I wonder how that would all work out with this mythology stuff. I don't know. Maybe something to consider. But uh, with that said, I think we've been rambling on for too long today. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>